Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode seven of the Rookies Podcast. I am Anne Lewicki, and joined, as always, by Olivia Sala and Tristan Tata. Today, our topic is all about coaching beyond the boards, and we have two excellent guests to give their insights on this topic and a little bit about hockey, coaching, daily routines, and how COVID has impacted it all. So first off, we have Spiros Anastas, who is the head coach of the Brampton Beast Hockey Club. Second, we have a familiar face, Mackenzie Holden, who you may remember from our earlier sponsorship roundtable discussion. Mackenzie is currently one of our account executives with our fall intern program here at Cosmo Sports and Entertainment. So welcome both of you to the Rookies podcast, and thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us today. And without any further ado, let's get into today's episode. So these past couple months have been a whirlwind roller coaster for everybody with the up and downs of COVID. And it's been a unique set of challenges that no workforce or sports team has ever faced before. And I was wondering if I could get both of your opinions sort of on how the COVID uh, pandemic has affected overall team morale, both in a sense of hockey and being in a workplace. I would like to start us off. Uh, obviously, it's definitely unprecedented times for everybody, staff, coaches, players alike. And uh, I think the biggest thing in terms of team morale, it's, it's, it has been really, a, a, quite frankly, a roller coaster because there's been times where it's been rock bottom uh, and you don't think you can get any lower. And there's times where there's glimmers of hope and you, you start to skyrocket in, in your, your feelings and your excitement and, and morale and, and possibilities. And then it seems to crash again. So it's a lot of up and down, especially going as far back as March 16th, right until, you know, November 12th or whatever it was that we made that announcement. Um, it's, it's been tough for our players. So, you know, the biggest thing about it is just keep constant communication and transparency and uh, continue those relationships with, with the players, at least from a coach's perspective, to keep them as level as possible. But it's definitely caused a lot of anxiety and uh, ranges of emotions because there's some weeks where there's exciting news like rapid testing and, and uh, vaccines. And then there's the next week where, well, we can't cross the border. So that really doesn't matter. And, you know, it, there's glimmers of hope in the summer and then the weather gets colder and then it looks like it's going to be gloom and doom for a few months. So um, as a coach in a leadership position, it was really tough to handle that with our players this summer. Yeah, I think um, my take on all this is, for us as interns and in Tristan, I think we're in a really unique position. Um, I don't think there's ever been an internship where, where you've never met your supervisor face to face. And um, so I think, you know, we're just kind of rolling with it right now. And, and all credit to Olivia, who's on the call, and Laura. They've set up um, those guests, guests who submitted the song, our kind of team building activities. But um, it is, it's highs and lows. And um, luckily, the staff at Cosmos has been awesome. And, trying to connect every day and at least talk to someone so you're just not you don't feel isolated just doing your work alone all day but um i definitely agree with spiros the ups and downs and now coming into winter um, it was so much easier to be positive in the summer when the sun wasn't setting at 4 30 but um it's just how you deal with it and you make when life gives you lemons you make lemonade right so i uh, definitely i know i love both of those socials we sort of had with the full team cosmos those were both great and continuing on with that, both everyone here is we've had to move to the world of basically working remotely. And it's a very different atmosphere than what we're used to in either traditional sports, going into the rink every day, being with the team, or for interns, getting to directly talk to your supervisors and be there in the office face to face. I was wondering if you two could both sort of speak how you found working in a pandemic and that switch to working remotely compared to what we've been used to for our entire lives. Uh, it's definitely different. I mean, you really got to rely in my job capacity uh, through the off season when I was recruiting players. Uh, and just trying to network as much as I can. 
really got to rely on, on, you know, obviously verbal communication and my ability to sell without showing people things, showing our locker room, showing our facility, um, just meeting someone in person. So that, that really stretched my, my skill set, I guess, and, and, you know, how I can speak and communicate. Uh, but also it really brought up new opportunities. Uh, obviously I've been really focused my entire career of continuing education and, and learning as much as I can and going to coaches seminars and meeting people. But typically that's always been in person. Uh, those hockey Canada conference, NHL coaches association, uh, platforms have always been in person. Well, now with the online capabilities and with the pandemic, uh, there's been so many avenues for education, uh, you know, again, starting in the spring right through to now, uh, where there's almost more options, uh, you know, whether it's coaches mentorship program through the NHL or the NHL Global Coaches Association uh, Conference or Hockey Canada availability. The Toronto Maple Leafs did one last week. It seems like it's, it's ongoing now, and that's because of the online capabilities. And I think that's always been there, but obviously now we've been forced to recognize that there's so many more ways to connect than in person. I still prefer in person, but it's definitely, uh, it's definitely stretched me to learn how to communicate through these different platforms and also um, learn through them as well. So, um, you know, it's tough, but uh, I think at the end of it, we'll all come up better because we've probably gained new tools uh, and capabilities with what we've been forced to do. Yeah, I think I touched on it a bit before, but um, I think it's really crucial that, you know, you have that constant verbal communication. And um, I don't know if he still thinks it's a good idea, but Jordan, my supervisor, gave me his phone number just to text or call him if I had any questions throughout the day. And so definitely been taking advantage of that. I think another interesting aspect of it is um, I, and, and I know you're working from home, Tristan, I'm not sure about you, but I am as well. And so I actually have to book our office for this call today because both my mom and my stepdad had a call. So my stepdad's in my brother's room, who's off to school, my mom's in the dining room and I'm in like our office space. So it's just those like things you maybe wouldn't think of when you think of working remotely. But for me, that's a big thing is where is everyone going to work that day and who needs what space? I can definitely, working from home has definitely been a change for everyone, even for us here at the Rookies Podcast. We've had to film a podcast through Zoom, which is no easy task, as we learned with our first episode and any technical difficulties. So it's been, it's definitely been a learning curve for everyone involved. And it's really seen a change in our day-to-day routines on all levels. And more directed at you, Spiros, like coaching is so much of it is hands-on, you're with players every day. How has this pandemic changed your daily routine as a coach and sort of the way you communicate with your players uh, during COVID and your coaching staff during all of this? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's definitely tested us. Uh, and I think this is going to be a test for everybody, players and coaches alike, whether they play this season or not, it's going to really test them on how prepared they can be and how much they want it. So for me, I, when we believed we were playing, um, you know, it was just constant communication as much as possible with the players just checking in on them, seeing how they were getting prepared. You know, their workout phases got changed a little bit because of the pushback start, um, you know, seeing what they were doing to kind of stay above water financially, but also to stay on top of their game. Uh, for a few of our players, you know, we did some video analysis. They wanted to watch the video of themselves. So it really forced us to go back and watch our games and, and pinpoint some things where some of our guys get better at. And uh, also between Duncan and I as a staff, you know, like I mentioned before, the educational opportunities that we logged on to learn from some of the best coaches in the world, but also going about it ourselves, like looking into NHL games and video and watching the NHL playoffs through the summer 
and finding little things that we can take and put into our own methods. Uh, so that's kind of what we've been focusing on, but it has been very difficult because you can't really step on the ice with the players. Um, you know, there were points in the summer and, you know, early in the fall where you can get on with a handful of guys up to about 15 guys at one point, but now it's back down to like five to eight. Uh, that's really difficult, but there's also league rules where you can't step on the ice with guys before the season starts. So it was all communication, really. That's all it is. And, and thankfully, um, you know, Duncan and I have really good relationships with our players and that's what we pride ourselves on as a staff and organization. So, you know, we believe in relationships and communication and transparency first before X's and O's. So we just felt, felt that the number one priority is making our guys as cared about as possible. And sometimes it was tough because obviously the centralized, you know, focus point for all these guys all summer is, are we going to play? And sometimes we didn't have any information for them. So we probably weren't communicating as much as we'd like to because it always kind of reverted back to that and we didn't have any information. So it's, it's really tested us a lot. Um, but me personally, you know, I haven't been able to get on the ice. Like, so it's just keeping my brain sharp. And it's not always education platforms where there's somebody presenting and I'm learning. Uh, the one great thing about this time is I, I've, you know, joined a few just networking groups where it's more peer-to-peer communication. And we get together on Monday nights at seven o'clock, let's say, and we just talk hockey. Uh, so that's kind of really been how I've, I've hit this head on is, is just keeping the conversation going about hockey so I can be sharp when it's time to step on the ice again. So sort of along the lines to continue on that, you mentioned one of the struggles is you're not actually able to get on the ice with these guys and be there and work with them. And during this pandemic, uh, there have been numerous guys that have either retired or no longer playing, and it's some of the core leadership there at the Brampton Beast. So how do you go about sort of adapting to these new changes in leadership when you can't really be on the ice with these guys and transitioning a new leadership team in for the Beast? Yeah, I mean, part of our job as a coaching staff in the ECHL, you do you do a lot more than what coaches at, at higher levels or different levels do. So we have to build the team. So we're, we're pretty much, you know, scouts, we're, you know, hockey just managers or, or, you know, director of hockey operations, whatever our titles might be at whatever organization we work for in this league. But uh, we have to kind of put the team together. So, you know, it makes it difficult because we can't get on the ice. We can't see guys play. So we have to go through video a lot. And when a pandemic hit, you know, and you lose anywhere from four to six guys through retirement, a couple were expected, but others were surprises, but surprises, not, not much of a surprise as the pandemic went on but in any given year there were a couple guys that likely would have played uh, but the pandemic kind of forced them into retirement so what you have to do as a scout and I've heard this from some really great scouts at the highest levels is yeah you can use your eyes but the best scouts use their ears so we were really forced to do as much homework as we can on players to replace these leaders that we lost and these impact players as we lost. So yeah, we can watch a video on them and see and look at their stats and see with our eyes what they can do. But it was the due diligence in terms of calling people that played with them, played against them, coached them, coach against them, maybe taught them in school, as many people as we can find to find out information on these potential replacements. Because when you lose guys like Jordan Henry, David Valerani, David Buchan, like they are the core of what it means to be a Brampton beast especially over the last couple of years with Colin Chalk's final season as a head coach and my first season as a head coach. Like those are probably two of the better years of Brampton Beast history. And you could just see the upper trajectory uh, of where the organization was going. Well, you lose that core. You got to do your due diligence on the players you're going to replace them with. 
And thankfully we, we hit on a lot of contacts that we had, a lot of resources we had, and we were very confident that the types of guys that we brought in, uh, and Luke Pither was an easy one. He played for the team previously. So there was a lot of information on him, but guys like Jared Gomes, guys like Tommy Hughes, um, those are some big pickups, but even rookies like Derek Topic, a captain at Princeton University, uh, to get as much information on those people and what they can bring was extremely important in this environment uh, where we couldn't go and meet them in person or see their games live. Uh, so it was a lot about you using your ears, and we, we had to do that, but it took a, a little extra work. Yeah, I think that's some great insight about sort of the level and what you have to do as a coach there that I think a lot of people don't know about. So that's some really great insight there. And building off sort of like the coaching and all the, the different hats you wear as a coach there. And I know earlier you mentioned your assistant coach, Duncan. I wonder if you could sort of just touch on the dynamics between the two of you of coaches and sort of how your coaching styles differ, how they're, how they're the same, and how really you've blended them together to find an optimal coaching style for peak performance. Yeah, I mean, Duncan is, uh, he's, he's quite a character. And, and, you know, I can confidently say he's, he's probably become my, my best friend in the game. Uh, and that's not always the case when you work with people, whether, you know, you're an assistant or you're a head coach or head coach, a general manager, it's, that's not always the case, but I'm really fortunate to have somebody like him. And, and he's somebody that I held over. Like he started halfway through the previous season uh, before my arrival and he was a contact with Colin Chalk. And when I met him before I took the job, we just kind of clicked right away. Uh, but we definitely are very different in a lot of ways, but I think our, our path ends up in the same, you know, same ending point. And I think that's what's important. We have the same visions to where we want to get, but we kind of take different pathways to get there. And I think that's critical because I can't have somebody that just agrees with every turn that I make during the season. Um, and he's an awesome checks and balance for me. And I learned so much from him because of his playing experience. He's a little bit older than me. So he's been around the game a lot longer and he's coached at levels that I've never coached before. I've never coached U14s and U15s and guys that are getting drafted in the OHL. So he brings a little bit of a different mindset to me and he's lived it because he's, he's been in those skates uh, per se. So, um, you know, we're different in a lot of ways. He definitely has a lot more energy and a lot more vocal on the bench than I am in terms of uh, a little bit rah-rah or uh, a few more F-bombs than me. Um, but, you know, I, we, we balance each other out and we, uh, we definitely check each other, you know, when, when one of us gets fired up about a player's poor performance, the other guy usually talks one guy down and we always bring different ideas to the table. But what's great is we always can come to a mutual agreement when we walk out of the coach's room um, door, uh, we're on the same page, but uh, he's awesome. And that, and the most important part, which I preach this to players as well at any level, uh, he and I have a lot of fun together. Uh, you know, we, we love going on the road. We love being on the bus. Uh, we love complaining, but the complaining always turns into a, a you know, a fun complaint. And uh, and then obviously we have our third wheel, Anthony Fusco, that comes around with us too. And he always gets the brunt of, of Duncan and I's uh, good and bad moods. But, uh, you know, I, I, I'm very fortunate to work with Duncan. He's, he's an incredible coach and, and more importantly, a, a really great friend. That's great to hear. It's You love hearing that about teams and how much leadership you love to work with. The people you work with, you enjoy. It makes work that much more fun. So it's really great to hear that. And you mentioned that uh, he was over from the previous staff, but before the Brampton Beast, I, I know that you actually coached down in South Carolina with the Stingrays there. Uh, and, you know, hockey's Canada's game. It's everywhere up here. And it's a little bit of a di different atmosphere maybe down in South Carolina compared to some of the other big sports down there. So I was wondering if you could sort of talk about the difference of coaching down in South Carolina versus up here at the Beast, both in sort of like 
how fans are, players, coaching, and sort of like the business perspective, even how hockey is compared to South Carolina versus up here in Brampton. Yeah, it was really different. Uh, obviously, not a lot of people knew as much about the game as fans, not just in Brampton, but just if you if you compare the North Division to the South Division, it's just truer hockey markets. Um, so, you know, that naturally just brings, you know, a different game as well. I'd say the North Division is, is closer to truer hockey, faster hockey, more skilled hockey and fast-paced hockey because you're talking about, you know, demographics and, you know, Portland, Maine, and you know, Glens Falls, New York, Reading, Pennsylvania, Worcester, Massachusetts, like, and obviously St. John's, Newfoundland. It just seems like the markets there are more educated in hockey and want to see a, you know, a finer product uh, on the ice. Where down south, they still kind of sell it as a rough and tumble game and just a bunch of crazy, you know, farm boys from Canada and, and you know, Northeastern American boys, Minnesota boys, uh, just kind of duking it out. So, it was really interesting in that set of things. Also, it was interesting when I first got there, our whole first month, month and a half was on the road. And I, and I asked, I was like, why don't we have any home games, you know, in October, November? And they're like, well, we got to wait till the college football season's over because we don't have any fans. Uh, so, you know, that was an interesting point because we de definitely took a backseat to college football. Um, but once we got going, like, it, it was interesting, the pressure in our team to be really physical, be really tough. And that's what they view really good teams to be. Um, you know, we had we had won a game against Jacksonville one night. It was like three to one, four to one. I thought it was a fantastic hockey game. Uh, I think it was three to one with an empty netter, so it was it was really tight. I think it was our fourth or fifth win in a row, uh, and we got booed off the ice. And I, you know, I, I couldn't figure it out, but we got booed off the ice because they didn't like our brand of hockey. We hadn't had a home fight in six or seven games. They thought our team was soft. Um, you know, Jacksonville was a real tough team. So although we won the game, they, they, they beat us up pretty well that night. I might've had a couple guys injured. So the fans didn't like that. We didn't have anyone to kind of answer the bell. And uh, at the Christmas break, I went out and got probably the toughest player I've ever coached in Josh Gratton. Uh, you know, if, if you just Google this guy and look at his face, you'll, you'll, you'll understand who he is. He actually was just on the spit and chicklets, uh, podcast like two days ago like he's just he fought in the nhl he's fought every big name fighter you could think of and i i went out and got him and it was the most celebrated moment of the season that i got josh Gratton, and it was it definitely helped our fan base and it helped our our team performance because that's what the south was like so it was definitely a different animal coaching in south carolina than it was here uh, but i i uh it was a, a good experience because it expanded my horizons of expectations a little bit but uh i do prefer the hockey in the north than i do down there for sure uh, it's hockey. It's the great game of hockey, and everyone loves it. Just it's interesting to hear the different versions of what people look for in hockey. Uh, it's definitely interesting. I'm used to the Canadian version of here. That's what I grew up watching. That's what my dad. My dad taught me how to play before anything else with hockey sticks and dropping the gloves. So I appreciate both sides of that. But also that uh, here in Canada, like we have hockey from coast to coast. No matter where you turn, there's always hockey. Whether it's a small team or an NHL team, fans and people of Canada love seeing that. But along with that, uh, it takes a lot to run a hockey team, and they need a lot of support. And I know before, uh, the city of Brampton was a big supporter of the Beasts, and Kerry did a whole thing with all of his interns talking about the importance of local municipalities and cities supporting their local teams. Uh, I was wondering if really both of you could speak to just the importance of municipalities and cities supporting these teams and sort of what the importance really is of that support. Go ahead, Mac. Um, so I think for me, especially right now in during COVID, I think it's super crucial for municipalities to, to support sport. Like 
I know kind of different comparison, but I know before COVID hit, me and my buddies were thinking of going down to Detroit to watch a Red Wings game and a Pistons game. And um, I think sports brings um, business to local economies and people like me and my friends will go to places just to watch sports. And um, without those sports happening, I think you can definitely, there's a correlation between no sports and maybe not as much economic activity. Like think about it. If you're going to go to a sports thing, maybe you'll go for dinner before you'll go to a bar and grab a drink and, uh, or like pay a local taxi to drive you places. But so I think, especially right now during COVID, that support is so important so that these sports teams can still stay on their feet and be um, ready to hit the ground run when everything does resume. Yeah, I, I agree. Like, I think just municipal support, um, it helps, especially at, at, at the higher levels and, and government levels as well. But as, as much as you can get the word out there about the team in the city or in the municipality or even in the region, like, you know, we're we're in Brampton, uh, but we're so close to the rest of the Peel region uh, and even pretty close to the Halton Hills region. So, you know, anytime you can get the word out there and get people involved, it really helps. And it brings opportunity, not just for the city and the municipality and the region, but um, just for people. Like we live in a really unique demographic and there's a lot of, uh, you know, immigrant families or, you know, first or second generation Canadians um, that are, are really keen to assimilate themselves in a culture. And, and I know this because I come from uh, that kind of family that I'm a first generation Canadian. And, and when you come here, you're proud to be here. You're proud to be part of this, this culture. So we, you know, what better way to, to welcome people to Canada or assimilate people uh, about, you know, than teaching them about our game. And uh, you know, that's how my family fell in love with it. And there's so many families that we can reach to to get them to fall in love with, you know, Canada's game. So I think we are, we're in a really unique uh, demographic where we have a lot of opportunities to reach out. So anytime you get that municipal support, you hope that it just, you know, creates a domino effect where it grows and you can provide opportunities to young families and multi-generational families where they can learn how to skate, learn about our game. And then within our own game, expand our horizons. Like we had Diwali nights, we had uh, South Asian dancers and singers on, on our ice between uh, periods. And not only did that provide opportunities to new hockey fans, people like my family, for instance, that came to every game, they saw things that they never saw at hockey games and they loved it. Like my mom was talking about eating samosas between periods and, and seeing these dancers and the colors and fireworks. Like it brought such a new experience to people, not only that were new to the game, but people that have been around the game for their entire lives. So we have such an opportunity to do that. So I, I think to recognize that it's good for our whole municipality. I, I think all the support we can get and that we can be a, a you know, a catalyst to spread that. Um, I think it's great and carries and, you know, the rest of Cosmos and the Brampton Beast, our ownership are doing everything they can to keep spreading that. And, uh, you know, hopefully it just continues to grow in years to come. I think both of you made some really good points there about how sports are a way to connect us. It's a way to bring new cultures together, whether you're going down to an NFL game to tailgate in the States or coming together in a beast game for all these new experiences. It really is a way to connect with people that you've never met. You become a friend to the fan that was next to you when you're cheering for the same overtime goal. And it's really a way to bond people together. But uh, this 2020 season for all of our sports basically was like no other. And while there's a few fans, some NFL games spread out. Majority of the teams and sports that played this year had to play without fans. And it really put a hit for a lot of teams in that sense. I was wondering sort of if you guys think that sports can survive with fans, if this had to keep going on like this, and if there are really any specific sports that you think could survive longer without fans than other sports. I, I can go first there. Um, I think, I don't know, to me personally, and 
feel free to disagree, but I, I don't know if it's sports specific. I think it, it's team specific. And as Spiros was just saying, you know, um, Brampton Beast has the luxury of having that really unique demographic and also trying to connect to that demographic. And I think the more loyal your fans are and the more they'll engage with you and support you, even maybe by not go, even if they weren't at the games, how those fans support you, I think is going to be really crucial. And it's going to be really interesting to see what, how good of a job teams have done building that connection. So now when they have to rely on it, they can really count on those fans to buy merch or maybe go to a socially distanced event. That's not the sport game itself. And so I think really relying on those connections you've built with fans and having them support you through these times is um, going to be really important going forward. And so, yeah, just to loop back to the question, I don't think it's so much sports specific rather than what legwork the team has done in the past to position themselves right now. Yeah, I think there's lots of different ways to, to approach that question. I think, you know, if you go strictly financially and we are a business, uh, no, we, we can't survive without fans. Uh, and the sports that can are obviously the ones that have billionaire owners that can afford bubbles and, and they have TV contracts and, and obviously definitely a bigger merchandise market. In terms of can we survive in the long term, like, you know, are we going to lose fans along the way? Uh, I think, yeah, definitely we can survive for all the reasons that Mac pointed out, but it really tests organizations to really reach out to their fan base and find different ways to interact. Uh, so, you know, the people in the Brampton Beast front office have done an incredible job. Lauren Foss, Sam McDade, uh, you know, Brooklyn Fell, Anthony Fusco, and obviously overseen by Kerry Kaplan. Uh, we've had a few um, kind of town halls online and we've connected with season ticket holders or, or stakeholders in our our organization a lot more than we did when we had opportunities to do it in person. So, you know, everything is an opportunity. You can be negative about everything. And, and, I'm, I, and I'm definitely not perfect. Trust me, there's days that I'm, you know, going up the wall and, and, and hating everything that's happening. Um, so I don't mean to sound over optimistic because that can get pretty annoying as well, but you have to find the opportunity in negative scenarios. And I think the beast have done that. Like we've, 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 um, communicated with our season ticket holders more than we did last year when we couldn't person. So now, not only has that given us a, um, you know, a, a different avenue to speak to them, but it also makes us recognize that when we can get back, we got to do this more often. We got to meet them in person. And we did before, but I think we can do it even, even more. And this online platform has showed us that. Um, on top of that, it's an old saying, but distance makes the heart you know, grow fonder. So, you know, we recognize that sports brings people together. There's been numerous examples over the ages of sports, whether it's Olympics or pro sports or, uh, you know, people just coming together, different nations playing each other, different cities, all that. We can reach back into those memories and, and understand that we've missed out on that in, in recent times. So I think when it comes back, um, there'll be even more people that are wanting to be part of it. Uh, and people who may have stepped away prior to the pandemic May, may come back. That's an opportunity that we have to, you know, uh, take advantage of. And I think uh, we're doing our best to do that with, you know, our open communication, our, the stuff we're doing on social and uh, the town halls that we've been having. But it, like Mac pointed out, you will see who's been prepared for this, for the return of fans. Um, and it's the same thing I say to my players to kind of bring a full circle. You'll see in 21-22, when hopefully everything's back to normal, you'll see who really wanted to be a hockey player. You'll see who really wanted to be a hockey coach. You'll see who's prepared and who didn't let this set them back. Same thing with organizations. You'll see it when fans are allowed back in the building, who's ready to welcome them back with a great product and great communication to keep them coming. 
Yeah, I think both touching on the, the chance that, that there was actually opportunities to grow in connections with fans, whether it be more digital communication. I think there's been so many great opportunities through this that it's, it's unfortunate that it had to come to this. But like you said, it is that learning curve that now we realize we weren't doing enough before. And when fans do return, definitely keeping that going because I know I bought into all of those things teams are doing. I have my cut cardboard cutout from the Jay Stadium sitting in my TV room that they shipped to me that I will keep forever, known as the pandemic cutout. So it's I definitely do think there are some cool ways that teams definitely engage with their fans. Um, on a bit more of a, a light note around the COVID times than this extended hiatus we've sort of all had, have there been any fun hobbies or new things that you picked up during this extended hiatus we've sort of been on? Uh, well, yeah, there's lots of positives. I, I just had to go get a new, uh, a new driver's license photo yesterday. So for the next six years, is that how long a driver's license photo lasts? I'm going to remember COVID by, by the length of my hair. Uh, so I haven't, I haven't grown my hair like this since I was in college. So that, you know, 13, 14 years ago was it. Uh, so, I mean, there, I don't know if that's a hobby, but just something I, you know, I've been doing. Um, I've been really great at chalkboard art. Uh, so, you know, we try and keep our kids, uh, you know, as happy and, and you know, look at things as much as possible. So I took up chalkboard art. I took it up before the pandemic hit, but it's really ramped up. So just different holidays, just, you know, drawing things on the chalkboard. And I've actually gotten pretty good at it. Um, you know, so little, little things like that to keep some excitement in the household, um, you know, golfing. My wife is an ex pro golfer. Uh, so she's always dragged me out to the golf course over our relationship. But this summer, you know, whenever it opened up in mid May, when you're allowed to go golfing, she really said like, get good this summer at it. And uh, between her and my, my second partner, Duncan Del Mayo, who's also an exceptional golfer, I've been golfing a lot this summer. So I'd say my game got pretty good for a very poor golfer prior to the pandemic. So yeah, growing hair, chalkboard art, and golfing have been three things I've gotten uh, better at over this, uh, the course of the last few months. I thought being good at golf was just hand in hand with being associated with hockey. I thought that was a summertime sport. Yeah, it's, it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be. And I don't know. <laughs> my way of talking my, myself out of that is if you're really good at golf and a hockey coach, it means you got you're not a really good coach because you're golfing longer than the others. Um, I think for me, I've kind of had two phases. So quarantine part one or season one, as it's being referred to um, in the summer, uh, I picked up tennis. Um, I was at my cottage pretty much all summer and my friends had a tennis court. So got got okay at tennis, just don't hit it to my backhand. And now um, part two, which we've just launched season two of quarantine. Uh, my family just bought a Peloton. So I'm aiming for the uh, Tour de France in a few years, you know. See, I, I attempted to pick up golf for how much I played. Definitely didn't get any better. Uh, it's still safer for me to drive the cart, but, you know, it's one of those games you got to practice a lot. So it's definitely some unique hobbies picked up for everyone during this time. Uh, but kind of switching directions again here, back to the whole coaching side of things and even leadership for Mac to answer. Um, what do you think the most important, important quality for a coach is, both on and off the ice? Um, I think personally, I think for me, the, the most important part is definitely your communication skills and, um, also being able, and in turn with the communication skills, being able to take criticism from your players. You know, if you think you have all the answers and you implement this game plan and it's just not working, you want to have that feedback from the players and be collaborative with them and to develop the best game plan that highlights their skills, highlights your use of strategy. And so I think definitely being a good communicator is key as a coach. 
yeah, it's uh, it's really, you know, to go on what Mac just said, uh, you have to be a good communicator. And that's always been an important part of being a coach and a leader, but it's really been tested through this time more than anything. Uh, and be, be as transparent as possible. Be uh, detailed and as honest as you possibly can and provide as much information, but concisely as well. Uh, you know, I find, and that's a challenge on the phone. Sometimes you can try and just fill a lot of time. It's awkward to talk on the phone. I, I, I believe sometimes, right. And, uh, you're always just trying to fill the gaps and, and sometimes you just kind of go on these, these tangents that don't make any sense. It's really forced coaches and leaders to be as concise as possible and, and give as much information and to be clear cut. So I think that's the biggest thing. Uh, and then the second one is just caring. Like everyone needs to be cared about all the time, but especially during this time, like we're all going through different emotions. Uh, you know, there's, there's, some people that battle mental health. There's some people that aren't sure how they're going to survive financially or put food on the table. Uh, there's some people who aren't sure if their grandmother um, is going to make it through this and they haven't been able to see them. So honestly, like just teaching me to just ask simple questions like, Hey, how are you doing? And how's your family doing? Um, I think that's such an important thing to do when you're a leader or when you're a coach, uh, because really nobody cares, you know, how much you know about a game, uh, in these situations, they care about how much you care about them. And, uh, you know, and then when it comes time to talk about hockey, they'll be more apt to listen to you and, and trust you because you've trusted and cared about them uh, through these tough times. So I think that's a real important factor for being a great leader during, during this pandemic. I definitely think you both made some really good points there. And I think a lot of people underestimate how hard it is to be a coach or a leader and how much actually goes into it. And there's a lot more behind the scenes that people don't realize what it really takes to be a good leader or a good coach. And continuing on sort of the coach trend there, like we've talked about throughout this entire podcast, COVID has kind of really changed what it means and how to coach during this time. But for you, Spiros, what's the biggest thing you've sort of had to overcome as a coach during this COVID time? Oh, um, I mean, it's just like my own, my own personal frustration and not letting that uh, project onto others. Uh, again, like, you know, and maybe I should be more like some people, but you, you see other podcasts and you hear other interviews and everyone's just all holly jolly, like positivity. And, and I do that too. Like I try and flip the negative into a positive as much as I can, but I think it's naive to, and, and, True, not not very transparent to say that we don't all face hard times. And there's been days that I, I'm just in a terrible mood and I'm not feeling it. And, you know, I, you know, woe is me. And, and I had a professor in school that uh, would tell me that it's okay to visit Pityville. It really is okay. A lot of people try and tell you to, to not go there, but it's okay to visit Pityville, but just don't break ground and, and build foundation there. And that's what he used to say. Like make your trips short uh, and you see what it's like to be there for a little bit, but then turn yourself around and get the heck out. So that's been my, the biggest roadblock, I guess, that I've had to overcome as a coach, because when you're a leader, when you're a guy that people want to talk to or look up to, uh, people, your feelings and how you're feeling project on others. Uh, so that's just been the biggest thing for me. But in a weird way, letting others know that I'm feeling that way, because then it opens them up to tell you how they're feeling. And then together we can get to a, a positive and end a phone conversation or a Zoom call on our next steps and how we're gonna get through it together. Um, but you know, if you let it consume you, then it just turns into negativity. Then you're ending a phone call or a Zoom call with, 
man, we just, everything just sucks. And, you know, thanks for confirming that for me because it sucks for you, it sucks for me. So let's just get off this call. So, you know, getting over that hump uh, on a day-to-day -day basis or week to week or month to month, uh, that's been a challenge and it's really pushed me to, you know, overcome those, those demons a little bit. And we all face them. And, and I think the first step is recognizing that you face them. And the second step is, is you know, communicating with others and, and helping to get each other through it. So that's been the biggest challenge for me without a doubt. I think, I think if I can, if ahead. I can just jump in and I think that's really fitting, you know, we've just reached the end of November and November has evolved from prostate cancer now to men's mental health and encompass all that. And um, just saying what you said, and it's, it's okay to talk to people and everyone's down in the dumps right now. And um, you just want to find that support network and to reach out to people. So I thought that was a, a perfect, perfectly timed answer moving into December here. And even I was going to say that really, I think, speaks your answer to the overall atmosphere of the Brampton Beast. Because when we had Eric on a few weeks ago on Tristan's episode, even he talked about sort of staying in touch with people, checking in, just making sure people are okay and actually talking to people. And I think that's great to hear both from a player and from a coach to see that you guys are in line with that and that it's really happening. And that's what's happening within the Brampton Beast team. So I really like hearing that sort of synergy between uh, leadership and players there. Um, but sort of for my last question here, before I pass it over to either Mackenzie or Tristan for anything they want to ask, it's just... There's been a lot of ups and downs with the ECHL this year with the border closing, people are going to play, delayed start times. Um, it's been a whirlwind of emotions for everyone. And it's just sort of wondering, get your thoughts on what you think the future of the ECHL is looking like right now. Yeah, I mean, it's a tough one to predict for the, the uh, 2021 season. I know that there's teams slated to start in about a week or so. Uh, and, you know, there's still a lot up in the air. I know there's teams that have confirmed that they're going to start. But, you know, those decisions happened months ago and at that time, those those spots weren't hot spots i just saw on the news yesterday that south dakota is the hottest spot in the world right now in terms of you know per capita cases and the growth of the virus well back in august rapid city which is located in the dakotas was saying that we could start in october uh so it just you know the teams that have committed to play it seems like the virus is, is catching on over there now more than than it was up here so I don't know what the future, the immediate future looks like for the 2021 season. I think there's going to be stoppages. There's going to be more teams that back out. There's going to be some major challenges for how do we stay healthy with, with bus travel and plane travel to different places. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if it, if it's tumultuous at best uh, for 2021, but I do believe that the future of the league is in great hands. The leadership in our league, Ryan Creelan, Joe Ernst, Dan Petrino, Joe Babbitt, whoever else is out there, and all the presidents and our governors, they're doing everything they can to make sure that the growth and the credibility of this league uh, continues on an upward trajectory. Uh, I think anybody can be judged on what happens in 2021. Uh, leagues, teams, coaches, players, whether they play or not, I don't think anyone can be judged on it. So they're just, they're taking this head on and they know that there's going to be some roadblocks and some setbacks, but the league in itself, it's growing. There's some expansion possibilities that have been announced already uh, with Three Rivers and uh, Iowa, and I know that there's more. They're doing a fantastic job with the affiliations with the NHL. Um, the, the, the product and the quality of the hockey is increasing. So we'll, we'll bounce back from this without a doubt. I mean, if anything, it's, it's made us united. You know, we have these little rivalries with each other between organizations and presidents and GMs and coaches. Um, if anything, I've I've mended some of those with, with guys that I've, you know, you know, those guys that I've 
gone in arguments with across the benches or, you know, I've always thought to myself, like, man, I just love beating that guy because I can't stand him. Um, you know, we, we've been forced to communicate a lot more through text groups and Zoom calls. So if anything, it's just going to make us stronger in the future. And, and I would see that the, uh, I would say that the league is just going to continue to grow. We just got to get through this rough patch right now. I'm hoping to, I'm all for seeing that growth once that's all done and best of luck when it does come getting back on the ice. But those are all the questions that I personally had. So I'm going to throw it over to either um, Mackenzie, Olivia or Tristan, if you guys have anything you want to ask. Yeah, I think I have one. Um, we just talked about the future of the ECHL and we've kind of talked about um, the unique game day ops that Brampton Beast put on, but what would you say makes the ECHL and Brampton Beast unique? And then a follow-up to that is, what would you as a coach, and I guess the many hats you are scout, director of hockey operations, what would you tell a player that maybe didn't make the NHL, didn't quite fulfill that dream, but about playing in the ECHL or for the Beast? Yeah, well, I think the unique thing for the Beast uh, and what we provide for a fan experience is try and entangle ourselves in the community as much as possible. So there's a lot of, you know, face-to-face -face interaction with our fans, our Sunday skates, uh, you know, our guys signing autographs, uh, locker, room, locker room tours. I know that we have our front office is really uh, trying to build a, um, a, a clinic slash hockey school, um, you know, pathway for us. And hopefully that grows into something where we can connect with the community more. So I think at the ECHL level in all markets, is the connection to the community for affordable fan entertainment, but not just to watch a hockey game, but to do more, to you know, learn about a game, be involved, get on the ice with players. And uh, you know, we can make such an impact on the grassroots level of hockey, where you know, I know that the top levels, they do stuff like that, but it's more from a funding perspective, like the Maple Leafs fund grassroots development. And maybe one you know, star shows up wants to see it to a practice. Well, we can be there more often. I think that's what's unique about our level of hockey. Um, and we can relate to people a lot more. Like we're not getting rich at working at this level. And, and so we're not anybody that anyone needs to be intimidated by or, you know, or think that our time is worth more than anyone else's. We're, we're just average people, uh, you know, just trying to play a game that we love and trying to earn a living. And, and we can connect with our fan base a lot easier that way we're on equal ground as everyone else, you know, and, and we're just trying to make it day by day. So I think that's what's unique about the UCHL at, in all markets. In terms of players that end up in this league, let's face it, you know, and I say this in jest sometimes in our locker room, especially early in the year, we are all in that room uh, and none of us ever expected to be there. No one grew up saying, I want to be in the UCHL. No, nobody did. It's just a fact, you know, you can laugh about it. Some people might you know, say, oh, don't say that. Maybe after Carrie sees this podcast, he's like, you can't say that. But <laughs> I, honestly, I think you would agree with me. You know, no one grew up saying, I, I can't wait to play for the Brampton Beast. It's just not a thing. And, and truthfully, nobody says that about the American Hockey League either. We all grow up wanting to play for the Toronto Maple Leafs, Montreal Canadiens, the Dallas Stars, whoever, whatever region we live in. And that's always our vision. So it is, in a sense, a disappointment to end up here. And similar to how we're dealing with this pandemic, how do you deal with that? You know, do you look at, at, you know, woe is me that I'm, you know, two steps away from the NHL and I feel like I should be higher? Or do you look at it as an opportunity to get more playing time, an opportunity to play among, alongside guys who are on AHL or NHL contracts, knowing that there's going to be scouts, general managers, and coaches in the stands 
to watch those guys. So what can I do to shine? What can I do to grasp that attention? What can I do to be available on an ECHL contract? I'm available to 31 American League Hockey League teams. So there is a positive to that as well. Because, you know, a guy like Nathan Todd, for instance, he got called up to the Belleville Senators, got sent back down, and the next week he's called up to the Manitoba Moose, where if you're on an AHL contract, you're probably just one team. So if they don't want to call you up, you're not getting called up. Where if you're on an ECHL contract, any one of 31 teams can call you up. So then your performance becomes a lot more critical uh, at that point. So there's lots of opportunities, lots of pauses of playing this league. Uh, you know, we provide a unique niche on top of, of those opportunities and the fact that we have such a pool of players that are from the GTA. So you look at our roster, we have 90% guys are from here. So they get to play in front of their families. They're, they can get to live at home. Younger guys live with their parents or their brothers and their sisters. Older guys, they build roots here and, and buy homes and, you know, are able to get some of their mortgage paid uh, for through, you know, the, the collective bargaining agreement because we have to provide money for housing. Uh, so there's lots of opportunities for guys to play for the Brampton Beast and the ECHL that can, you know, further their career, but also make it a comfortable living for them uh, while playing a, a high level of hockey. So, you know, you know, we try and flip that negative of, man, I got a long ways to go to reach my goals to a positive and them seeing uh, the avenues that they can take as long as they're, they're ready and, and they perform well. Uh, I have an, another one really quick just off of that. As, as a coach, how do you develop a team culture that, you know, if there is a scout in the stand, in the stands, that one guy that's maybe that close to maybe making it to the AHL or, you know, and sees that path of themselves, how do you create a culture that it's about the team and not about putting on like a five goal for this performance that night? Yeah, I think it's, it, that's one of the biggest responsibilities and challenges for coaches at this level. And Duncan and I have always approached it as, you know, making it, about how we do things here, you know, and you have a core group of players and we talked about veterans and leadership earlier in this podcast, but that's what, those are the guys that help you the most. So when you have a Jordan Henry, a David Pican, David Valerani, um, later in the season last year, like uh, Anthony Nigro, when you got a, a handful of those guys and you mix in some younger leaders like a Matt Petgrave, Chris Martinet, who have ambitions to continue going, but those guys are the pulse of your room. So you make them understand what it means to be a Brampton Beast and how we do things here. So then everyone else that comes in and out has to answer to them, not just to Duncan and I. They have to answer to them because those guys aren't likely moving. They're not going up. They're finishing their careers here. They're the Brampton Beast. So they want to win championships. They want to play the best they can. They want to win games. They want to perform in front of their families and their friends. And they want to get raises on their contract next year. They want to play for the beast, but they want to be able to approach Kerry Kaplan, Spiros Anastas, and Duncan Dalmeo and say, hey, I think I earned an extra 50, 60, 70, $100 a week because of my performance. So there's a lot at stake for those guys. So when you can build that core to make it about this is how we do things here, then anyone who comes up or down knows that they got to answer to those guys. And that's how you build that culture because you want to win it for them. And some of those guys have been close to championships and never won him. Some of those guys like David Valerani won a championship in their rookie season and they want to taste that again. So it's all about winning it for each other. And once you get to, to that point, then it just pulses itself in your room. Um, but that's why it's so critical going back to Anne's one of our earlier questions, you lose those guys. How do you replace that with people that can build that culture in your room? So that's kind of what we tried to accomplish. And no matter who came down, whether they were on an NHL contract or AHL contract, we didn't care. 
we'll develop you to get back up. But while you're here, you do it our way. And uh, thankfully, we had some really good guys that, that bought into that. You know, when you talk about Joey Decord, uh, Francois Beauchamp and Alex Dubot, Trent Bork early in the season, those are all guys that were on contracts higher than ECHL contracts. But they came and they performed and they were here because they really respected our core leadership group. So, you know, that's the first step in doing it is having the right people with you. For anyone who is looking for an internship with the Beast or Cosmos, you can visit our websites at cosmosports.com or brantonbeast.com. You can also get in touch with me directly at osala at cosmosports.com or Michael Hunter at nbhunter at cosmosports.com. And if you're looking for an internship with the Beast, you can get in contact with Anthony Fusco at afusco at brantonbeast.com. But that is it for today's episode. Thank you so much to Mackenzie Holden and Spiros Anastas for being on today's episode. Really appreciate you guys taking the time to sit with us today. And all the best for the holiday season to you and your families. Stay safe, stay healthy. And just thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Thanks, guys.